It was uh, about two years ago to the day my sons and I rode down and, and shared and worshiped with you here on a Sunday morning. Kind of spied on you, make sure you're doing the right things down here. No, but uh, it's a pleasure to be back with you. I have the opportunity to meet with your pastors uh, once a month for ministerial meetings, so it's good uh, to get to know them. And, and let me just share this too. Uh, what your pastor, what Pastor Joe is doing this week is fantastic. I believe this is probably one of the greatest movements to multiply the faith throughout lands. It's, it's incredible. Be praying for him. It's uh, a lot of pressure. We have a couple of pastors from our church that do that. They do it in Kenya. This is a great, great thing. Keep supporting him. Keep praying for him. It's good, good uh, ministry. It's always hard to know what to share when you kind of just drop into a place for one time. I'm used to speaking uh, multiple weeks through a series or through a book or whatever. And uh, as my wife and I were talking about it, as I was praying about it, we uh, decided to address the subject of pain. Now, if you're not in pain this morning, that's okay. Uh, I would consider this passage and some of the practical things I'll give you at the end to be things for you to have in your toolbox, if you will, of faith. Uh, we always face that question, how can a loving God allow there to be pain? So much hurt, right? Anybody ever ask, ask that question of you, or have you ever asked that question? God, if you're so loving, why is there so much hurt? And we've got uh, soldiers that come home wounded. We have people in poverty around the world. Uh, people suffering with horrendous illnesses. We've got painful things like divorce and, and death. So how do we navigate the reality of pain? The Apostle Paul understood pain, and, and in, in Romans chapter 1, we'll be in Habakkuk this morning, chapter 3, but we'll get there in a minute. But in, in Romans 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Pretty amazing statement there from Paul. Certainly, God inspired it. But the idea that considering our present sufferings in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us, incredible. Again, to us being to the church, people of faith, those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's interesting that Paul writes that, and things are about to get very serious. It wasn't long after this that Rome burns, remember? And the crazy, uh, psychotic emperor Nero probably burned it himself. There's some theory about that. I don't know for sure, but he, of course he blames the Christians. And persecution of the Christians gets very, very extreme. You have Christians who are literally burned at the stake. They're used to, as torches to light up the night. Christians who are impaled on stakes. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the Roman Colosseum. And it was amazing to stand in there and consider what had taken place in the Colosseum. The idea that Christian brothers and sisters of the past would be fed to lions for the amusement of those who are watching. Some of them would be covered with animal hides and wild dogs would be set loose to tear them to pieces. 
I imagined in that Colosseum the roar of the crowds as people are cheering on and laughing and, and enjoying the scene. But then I imagined the sound of people offering their last prayers to the Lord. Do you think there might have been some wondering on their part of where God was in that moment? Here they are in this horrendous circumstances and they're watching their their fellow believers be ripped up or or burned and and persecuted because of their faith and, and knowing they're up next. Imagine what those prayers were like. In Romans we read, all creation groans. And the whole basis of that is this understanding that, that the way things are now is not the way they're supposed to be. And that God will come and He will make them right. The day will come. We're waiting for the completion of our adoption for the redemption of our bodies. But in the meantime, when we face hard times and trials, can, can, can we believe that God has the answers? Psalmist writes in the 73rd Psalm, it was wearisome for me to consider all these hardships until I entered the sanctuary of God. The simple fact is, I think you already know it, life brings a lot of questions, doesn't it? But God has the answers. And God knows the future. The truth of God becomes the foundation we must stand upon. I love verse 25 of Psalm 73. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can you say that? Can you say it and mean it? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Powerful. I've entitled the message this morning, A Hike from Pain to Joy. I received word from a student that I was a youth pastor of many years ago that kind of helped lead to this message. His name was Tim. And I want to read some words that he shared this morning in my message. He says, It's been a crazy life, a long, hard battle. Dad died when I was nine. Mom died when I was 13, when you were living here. My uncle tried to choke me on Thanksgiving, so I ran away. I had to move from one house to another before landing at my aunt's house. Grandpa died when I was 17. He was the only father figure I ever really had. Grandma died when I was 21. Then my aunt that took me in died when I was 24. I figured God was punishing me, so I tried to live my life perfectly, fearing that God was just waiting for me to mess up and blast me again. It's it's hard to fully get away from that thinking, But it kept me a prisoner for a long time. God wasn't a father. He was a judge just waiting to exercise a sentence on me. I still don't have a lot of answers. And I try to see the father that everyone else sees in God and in Jesus. Feeling alone for most of my life has been so overwhelmingly depressing. Plus, I feel like if I get too close to people... If they too will be gone in an instant, so I have a hard time opening up to many. Sometimes numbness just takes over. 
I don't know what your pain is like or what your pain has been like, or I certainly can't tell the future and tell you what pain will come. But the reality is pain comes into our world. I'm going to take you to the book of Habakkuk this morning. And I believe there's some answers that are found there. Now, obviously, I've got to power through some of this and kind of give you an overview, but, and I'll give you some action points here in a little bit. But here we have this prophet who really speaks to God, not as much from God. It's interesting. And this was probably written about 640 to 615 B.C. This is before the fall of Assyria and the rise of Babylon. God used Assyria to punish Israel, and now he would use Babylon to, publish, uh, to punish Assyria and Judah. And this prophecy would be filled, fulfilled several decades after Habakkuk in 586. But he's ultimately saying here in the first chapter, he's saying, God, please look around. Look at the stuff that Judah is doing. What are you going to do about it? Look with me at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The oracle of Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Isn't that interesting? He's accusing God of, of idly looking at wrong. Justice not going forth. The wicked are surrounding the righteous and... And the justice that does happen is perverted. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, God, you must act. Now look at verse 5. God responds, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Hold on to that thought a minute. And God says, This plan will not make any sense to you. You wouldn't even get it if I explained it. And understand, he's, he's going to use, he's going to punish the, the Jews in Judah by the hand of the Babylonians. She's just go, what? In chapter 2, God says, listen, you're going to have to trust me ultimately. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. What does it mean to live by that faith of a righteous. We're also going to live right. We're going to believe right. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute or two here. But God's saying, listen, put your faith in me. You will live by that faith that you have in me. He goes on and shares some woes. I'm not going to get into that. He's ultimately saying, listen, I'll deal with them and their sin after I deal with yours. Chapter 3 is a prayer, and it's really meant to be sung. 
And it includes the events of the past and things that are are still going to be happening. But it reviews the power and splendor of God. Okay? Now check out the physical response to it in verse 16. Habakkuk 3.16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Here's this powerful physical response in, in, in taking in God. His body trembles and his lips quiver, or quiver and his bones rot and his, his legs shake. Are you getting the sense of, of, of how much this has moved him? But he says, listen, I will wait for the judgment of God to come. There's this wise resolve there. I will wait for the judgment of God to come. For God to make it right again. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Talking about some hard times here, isn't it? And hard times come, don't they? Hard times come. And and this is where we find out what it means to live by faith. Hard times are going to come. You're going to have to trust me on this one. Think about it. People live by faith easily when everything's going smooth, don't they? Boy, God is so good. I've just got, you know, everything is going so well. God is just smiling on me. But no faith is required, really, is it? Why? It's going good. God's, God's good. Everything's in place. Everything's the way it should be, right? We start thinking that. But what about when there's no fruit on the vine? Unemployment? Or what about when the crops fail and everything falls apart? The livestock is stolen. We're treated unjustly. What about when everything looks and feels wrong? These are the moments of our greatest test, aren't they? To what or to whom do we turn when the bottom falls out of life? I want you to understand that the danger for us is that when these hard times come, that we go to the wrong ideas or we lean on wrong theology. And it can cause us to think then that our faith is messed up because there's no crops in the field or there's unemployment now or there's death or there's hardship all around me. Obviously, there's something wrong with my faith. And the reality is we think wrong about adversity and hardship. So I'll back up. I want you to think about this for a minute. If adversity is a sign of a, of a faith problem, then what then would we say to those martyrs who, who die for their faith in Christ? Well, 
you're facing this hard time because you don't have enough faith. Really? They don't? They've got enough faith to stand by their faith in Christ and, and, and die a torturous, horrible death? It's not a lack of faith. Our doctrine, our theology, our beliefs must include that, that these hard times, these, these trials and pain are normal. We don't want to think that way. We don't want to think of, of bad times and hard times being normative. We want to think of that as the exception. Look with me at the second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshakable. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Isn't that beautiful? God has been faithful, and he will be faithful. As Christians, we can understand that suffering and pain, and trial, and hardships are normal. But we still ask why, right? We have hard times we say, okay, Lord, well, why? Why is this going on? That's all right. Understand that for Habakkuk, in context here, the Hebrew nation, what we read in, in verse 17 was their context. The, the Babylonians had come, and they destroyed their crops, they had taken their livestock, they'd killed many of their people, and they had destroyed much of Jerusalem. Verse 17, where everything's going wrong, that was their context. Everything was wrong, and it wasn't fair. But look what it says in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Everything's wrong. They're impoverished now. They've been treated unjustly. They don't have food, and they're going through all this hardship, and their friends have been killed, and the city's being destroyed. And they're... Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I don't know what your circumstances are this morning, but you know, for me, life's going pretty well, and so to come together and sing praises like this is just... It's awesome. It's right. We praise God who's blessing us. Can we do that when the bottom's falling out of life? Can we come and, and praise our God? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What does that look like? The simple fact is that, that 
hard times and trials and suffering may come, but joy can be chosen. I want you to get that this morning. If you leave with nothing else, leave with this understanding that joy can be chosen. A few months back, I was listening to a, a testimony. And she was sharing how she and her husband had to uh, invite her sister to come and live with them because she was having hard times. And so her sister moved in with her two children. And her sister wasn't too stable. And one day while she and, and her husband were off at work, her sister was at, in their home with her two children. And one of her sister's ex-boyfriends came into the home, shot her, and then shot himself in front of the children. All of a sudden, she's forced into parenthood and dealing with her own grief and dealing with the grief of children who watched this, the trauma of them who watched it. But what struck me as she continued on in this testimony, she made this statement. I had given my joy away. And you and I just stop and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You had your joy ripped from you. Right? I mean, ripped from you. And she said, no. I had given my joy away. How do things look for you right now? Is it rough? Painful? Trials? Just when you think you found the bottom, the bottom fell out a little worse? Are you wondering how you can go on? Maybe you're not there. If not, the, this morning is, is information to put in your toolbox of faith. Knowing what I do as a, as a pastor, I know that there's pain in the room. I know that represented in here is sorrow upon sorrow. Maybe some Job-like circumstances at times. If we had time, we could tell stories and we'd probably be amazed. By the way, is the value of a small group or a smaller worship community. My question for you is, do you still have joy? Or have you given joy away? Take note here that what we're reading in Habakkuk is these hardships expressed are external that interesting? Their friends have been killed, the city's destroyed, the crops are gone, livestock's been stolen, they're external. And yet, in verse 18, it says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Which I want to just share with you, because it, it suggests an internal reaction, or better said, an internal condition, that helps deal with the external circumstances. You follow me? An internal reaction based upon an internal condition. It says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. If you've been through hard times as a Christian, then getting it out and, and enduring it might look different for you. Maybe you have different ways you deal with it. Uh, for some of you, it might be praise songs or, or quiet meditation and rest. Or, or maybe you're the ones that have to just complain and call on God until you collapse into submission. 
declaring, I don't, I don't get this, I don't understand this, but God, I trust you. Or maybe for you it's getting alone and recalling verses, reading scripture, or quiet prayer, maybe some mixture, combination of those. But hopefully it ultimately, ultimately comes to the point where you say, Lord, I still rejoice in you. Some of you have had to comfort others when they're going through hard times. And some of that frustration is, I I just don't know what to say. And sometimes you don't have to say anything. Just be there. Grieve with those who grieve. Can I just say that when we face hard times, can I, I just want to make sure that you dump any bad theology that you have. Leave it behind. Dr. Newt Larson is a friend and mentor of mine. And he said it this way. I like this. He said, this false health and wealth gospel taught by some crumbles at every hardship. It is murdered by every tragedy. And you say, okay, health and wealth gospel, people don't believe it. Yes, they do. It's very popular. This idea that if you just have enough faith and you just trust enough, everything's going to be okay. It's ridiculous. It crumbles at every hardship. It's murdered by every tragedy. The truth is that we can find joy in our Savior at any time, in any circumstance. So I ask you, can you trust God this way? Can you do it? Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul felt the need to repeat himself here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Do I need to say it again? Rejoice. I'm not suggesting that it's easy. In hard times, the spirit of rejoicing doesn't naturally flow. It does not come out of our natural selves. It comes out of the Spirit of God. It's taught us different. And don't don't be fooled. When things are great, we have to remind ourselves to rejoice too. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me give you a few points I believe we see from Habakkuk here on how we do this. I call them Habakkuk's secrets for surviving hard times. First, ask God. We see that right in in chapter 1, verse 1. God, are you asleep at the wheel here? Where are you? What happened? I I believe it's appropriate. If we face hard times, we we always need to understand God has a, a plan and he's working it all together. And it's okay for us to say, God, why are you allowing this? God, what do you have for me? What, what, is there something I need to learn, I need to gain from this? Second, be thankful. God, I thank you in everything. I understand that you're in charge. Third, wait on the Lord. Yet I will wait for the Lord. That's the tough part, isn't it? We want to pray, and, and we have a hard time. We, we have a situation we want to deal with, and we, we pray, and we're like, okay, God. And then he doesn't do it quite quickly enough sometimes, does he? Fourth, we decide to rejoice. Decide to rejoice. It's a decision to be joyful. It's a decision not to give our joy away. Obviously, this all starts with asking the Lord to be our, our, our Savior. If, 
if we don't have that relationship, we, we can't just run to God this way and say, okay, God, it's okay. I, I will wait on you. I will trust in you, the God of my salvation. He's got to be the God of your salvation through faith in Christ. If you're not a child of God, place your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. We rejoice in who he is and what he offers us. In times of crisis, I'd much rather be around Christians. We can't always do that. Again, I'm going to say it, hard times, trials, and sufferings may come, but joy can be chosen. No fruit on the vine, no livestock, hard times, yet I will rejoice. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Look at the 19th verse there in chapter 3. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. We have to trust in the sovereignty of God. He's in charge. He's the controlling force of everything. And in that, we can be taken to new heights. Can I just say, too, that perspective is everything when we're going through life. It, it, it doesn't matter how things may look right now. It matters how they turn out. Please hold that. We, we, we so often look through the lens of today and now, and we can't see past today and now. And the reality is, there is a future that is bright for those who are in Christ. It matters how they turn out. In the early 1600s, the king of Sweden ordered the construction of the ultimate warship called the Vasa. It was armed heavily with mostly bronze cannons, beautifully ornate. Her maiden voyage was on August 10th of, of 1628. Sailed 1,400 yards out into the sea and sank. They salvaged the cannons and a few valuables. This was found again in the 1950s in a, bu a busy shipping lane near Stockholm. Now, if you want to go to Stockholm, you can visit the Vasa in the Swedish Museum. There's a situation where it looked really good. It was enviable. This was the ultimate warship. Oh, man, and you look right now and go, boy, things are great. It matters how they turn out. So that means that sometimes you and I have to just get past this part to get to how they turn out and trust that God is in control. That even though he's going to allow hard times to come, he has a plan. Let me read to you more words from Tim. I was a very angry person when I lost my mom, and especially after losing dad. I hated the idea that God could be up in heaven with some sort of plan that everyone kept telling me that God had for me, but I just couldn't see. On the football field, I hit you as hard as I could hit you, just to feel a little pain. On the wrestling mat, I wanted to leave all my aggression on the other guy. In track, I would run until I couldn't breathe, trying to escape the pain. I didn't want peace. I wanted someone to hate for all the wrong things in my life that I couldn't control. So when I started to feel peace, I didn't know what to do with it. 
One night I just drove in my Toyota pickup until there was no more lights and I turned on the radio and the song God Be Small Enough to Hear Me Now came on and I turned it up. Right there I let go of my hate and asked God if he was really there to make something out of my life so I didn't walk around hating everyone in the world. I was amazed and blessed to find peace. I still have questions. I carry a lot of hurt around and I can't explain the feeling of peace that I have. A peace that I could not fabricate. That was the only description. And I love that line of the song, God be small enough to hear me now. Today I'm like a youth pastor to my students in my science classes. Sharing my story at the end of every year to my athletes that I coach as well. I have an army of students that I've had the privilege of being an example to. I'm blessed with my beautiful, amazing wife and boys. Unfortunately, I still feel that any moment they could be gone as well. So that is the fear that I let take a foothold in my heart. I strive to live joyously, but have to fight that fear that ever creeps in. I also lead worship in my church, and I love it. And that has been a gift that I feel like God has just let loose in me. It is humbling to consider just how broken I am and see how God allows me to be an instrument. So many kids cry and give me hugs and their parents call me at the end of the year after I share my story. And I hope that just for a moment, I could be example of, an example of perhaps the only Jesus they will ever see. We can't get so locked up here we miss what's coming. We serve an incredible God who has a plan, who's in charge, and is faithful. We sing about it. We list all the attributes. Can't lose that when times get tough. We cling to it. And God is the joy of your salvation. And don't give it away. Don't give it away. Yet, I will rejoice in you. Would you join me for prayer? Heavenly Father, we don't always want to talk about pain. It's not our favorite subject. And yet your word addresses that too, and we thank you. We thank you for the words that you inspired Paul to share, that when we consider the hardships of now, we realize they just pale in comparison of the glory that is to come. Father, right now I just lift up anybody in here who's struggling with seeing past today, seeing past the hardships that are there. Anyone who's given their joy away. Lord, may you come in and be their joy again. May the truth of what Jesus did on the cross to allow us to be righteous and justified before you, may that truth just come in and be the light in our souls during dark times. Father, that we will be people that ever praise you people that rejoice in the Lord 
always. That you would be glorified and that your name would be lifted high. And it's these things we pray in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.